I actually no, I I really love tennis. I really did like tennis a lot. Never liked basketball. I think actually, had I played baseball more, I might have liked that more, despite all my humiliation. You know, yeah, you just couldn't get past that at first. Exactly, exactly. That happens. Welcome to Highly Questionable. I'm Jake. <laughs> this is Paul. We're a sports podcast now, but we're a sports psychoanalysis podcast. <laughs> yeah. We just break down ourselves every single episode. <laughs> On the yeah. next episode, we'll figure out why in my old age, I'm all in all of a sudden really into golf. Playing and golf or, love or watching golf? Both, but playing more so than watching. Wow. It's because apparently you have a lot of disposable income. Well. That's why I don't play it very much and why I'm not very good yet because it is definitely a rich person sport. I have some thoughts on golf that I will share you with you next podcast. That's right. On on the next episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy Know-It-All Sports Neuroses Edition. <laughs> but in real life, we're talking about, we're getting into a spoiler-filled dive on WandaVision Season one, question mark? Mm. Also, the mm. next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or should we say Marvel Cinematic Multiverse, a.k.a. phase four? It's getting too confusing for me. I do not have the brain power to, to keep up with the phases and the dimensions and the new universes and, and all the new characters that are going to be coming down the pipe. I really, I, I don't have the brain power for it. I'm old. I mean, talking about all these dimensions is giving Paul dementia. <laughs> hey, oh, folks. Oh, my goodness. That feels now, wrong. Now seems as good a time as any to hit that intro music. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. And back inside, our crazy brains. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Being back inside our crazy brains seems like about the perfect segue for doing a very spoiler-rich dive into a recap of the WandaVision Season 1 question mark. Don't you think, Paul? <laughs> Well, it was a crazy show, and we may have some crazy thoughts to share about it. It was, uh, it was, it was intense. I, I have to say that I almost didn't watch the final episode in time for this podcast. I got oh. home from a, from a little vacation last night, and I thought, what do I need to do? I need to actually sit down and watch WandaVision, the series finale, so or the season finale, so... So that gives us a little bit of insight into where this was hitting for you, perhaps, in that I recall you saying back when we were going through The Mandalorian on Disney Plus that you and your wife were watching first thing Friday mornings as episodes were released. Sounds like the same was not true for WandaVision, or at least not for this last episode. Not for this last episode. And honestly, well, here's the thing. We really did enjoy WandaVision. We've watched all the episodes, but we didn't need to watch it the moment it came out. Like we typically watched it. It came out on Friday nights. Typically we would watch it on Saturdays. 
This time we watched it on Sunday and it felt just fine. Maybe you could say that it just wasn't as compelling to us as is The Mandalorian, but it also could be a reflection that we wanted to wait. It was like dessert. And sometimes you want to wait for dessert to hit, you know? Interesting. For my, in my household, for my wife in particular, it was sort of a reverse where she was fine with the Mandalorian, enjoyed it for what it was. But with WandaVision, after every episode, we would watch it, you know, Friday night and she would be upset that there wasn't another episode to watch, that she had to wait a week. She really, she's been spoiled by all of the binge uh, releases of entire seasons that we've kind of gotten used to with these streaming platforms and was so hooked on WandaVision that she was really ruining the decision of Disney to release this on a weekly cadence. Though I will say for my part, I really liked it. I did too. I actually think that it was the best decision that Disney Plus could have made because it builds up that anticipation. And with a show like WandaVision, I think there's an innate desire to talk about each and every episode with certain people. You know, you want to you want to talk about episode seven where we found out the real bad guy. Uh, you wanted to talk about how it sort of developed. I think that one of the joys about shows like this is the conversation that you get to have afterward. And if you binge it all, or if you're all watching it in different time frames, some of that enjoyment, some of that community that you have, it it loses something. You just don't have a chance to do it as much. It there's a there's something built into it, the community aspect that I've really missed with the binging versions of that streaming platforms have kind of migrated toward more and more. Because I remember doing that back when the office was on TV. And we had a little group that we would gather weekly and we would enjoy the ritual of watching the latest episode of The Office and getting to talk about it afterwards and enjoy popcorn or puppy chow or whatever that was. And that made it that much more fun. Uh, And I rediscovered it actually about a year, two years ago, where my sister and I were both way behind on Stranger Things. But we decided, hey, let's watch it together, one episode per week. And that was a blast. And it was a fun time getting to connect with my sister and enjoy something together and leave yourselves in the suspense and allow those conversations to happen. So that, I have to say, I've been a fan of Disney doing that with these shows. I I totally agree. For, For me, that experience really hit its apex was when I worked for the the local paper here in Colorado Springs called the Gazette. Um, I was, you know, we had this open newsroom, and every every Wednesday, I think every Wednesday after twenty four came on, mm. I would sit down like like about ten people in the newsroom would sort of gather around sort of our little pod. And we'd unpack what happened on 24. Did you see it when he cut the arm off? Or did you see it when the bomb went off? Or, you know, it it was a ridiculous show. In some ways, it, it was really well done and really just a whole bunch of trash. But when you watched it together, even though none of us watched it together, when you were able to sort of unpack it together, it sort of it sort of transcended what the show was. And you really got a chance to to connect with one another through this silly show. We actually had to budget 20 minutes after each episode of 24 
just to unpack it. And and as the seasons went on, we started having these 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 watch parties with all these grizzled journalists. They come from really different sides of the political spectrum. We would all gather in one place, have chips, have drinks. We would watch the first episode of 24. It was great. It was really great. And and you don't have a chance to do that when you just binge these things. I've wondered that with in relation to how I feel about Lost, because I watched Lost as a binge later on when it was on Netflix. I didn't watch Lost live, but I remember being at football practice and hearing guys talk about, you know, been watching it episode uh, every an episode every week. And whatever day it came on, I don't I don't recall. But the day after, you know, we'd be in our warm-up lines stretching out for practice. And there were a couple of guys that would just be talking across the lines about what happened <laughs> on the most recent episode of Lost. And I wonder how much of my own negative reaction to what happened and the way the show ended, you know, stems from binging through six seasons of Lost and being at that point, when you watch these things season by season, episode by episode over weeks and months and years, I think you can more easily forget these threads from four years ago that me binging it, I just watched that a week or two ago. It's fresh on my mind. And now I'm a lot more upset about them not doing anything with that story thread because it's front of mind for me versus the person that spent four years watching this show. They've forgotten all about what happened in season one. I Who cares about the polar bear? Exactly. Right. And so I wonder you know, how much the medium is the message in that case where the medium of binging, being able to binge, actually made me like the show less than I might have had I been watching it on that original cadence of release. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a good question. It's a good question. And and I know that there were a lot of people who watched it every week and were still pretty upset about the ending. Um, I think one of the things about WandaVision that, that really worked in its favor, nine episodes, done, you know? And when you have a sprawling season, you know, a sprawling series like Lost that goes for multiple seasons, you know, maybe what, 18, 24 episodes per season, it's a lot easier to lose track of everything that goes on. With WandaVision and with a lot of shows actually now, because they're so, the seasons are so short, it allows you to tell a much more streamlined, um, coherent story in a way. And I think that really worked to, to WandaVision's favor. So that, that is a good segue in that I mentioned this in our, when we, for a couple of weeks ago, when we watched the first three and we talked about that and made our projections for what was to come in the rest of WandaVision, I remember mentioning that I was getting some lost vibes and I was a little worried about that. What, what they, where they went with the rest of the season of WandaVision made me more worried in that regard to your point where yes, they technically wrapped up this Westview storyline and yet they left so many different things unanswered. And you know, some things are going to go unanswered because they've got to tease you and lead you into phase four of the MCU. But it felt like to me that they, they left so many threads as, oh, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this? And we didn't resolve that. That it has me a bit worried about, because that was what every season of Lost would do. 
Yeah. They would end by giving you more questions and answers. And I love that all the way till the end when I didn't get, when I got a whole, when they did it, when they seem to, in my opinion, you know, say, give this deus ex machina, that's why we're not answering all your questions. And it's funny because I, I'm okay with things not being wrapped up with a bow. I just don't, I've just been, I just feel like I've still got this trauma from Lost where they just left everything unpacked and things that I was really interested in. And I'm sitting here looking at my notes on the WandaVision finale and like, they left with so many more questions than answers. Not inherently bad, but it just makes me nervous. Yeah. We'll see. Well, and that isn't that sort of, you know that I'm a superhero guy, right? But isn't that sort of the weakness of the superhero genre in a way? In that it always, even if there is a finale, it always is open-ended because these these superhero stories, they just go through so many different iterations. They bring people back to life. They go into new dimensions, new universes. They go into all these different directions. And so you never have necessarily a completed story. I mean, how many times have we seen some bad guys switch to the good guy side for, you know, half of their their run. You just don't there's nothing ever really concrete when it comes to the superhero genre. And I think that that I did feel that at the end of WandaVision. I I know that you were going to be dealing with spoilers so we can sort of launch into into that portion of it, but I do have to say I don't know if I had sort of that lost vibe but I did walk away from the ending of WandaVision feeling a little bit disappointed. It was, I thought that the climax, the the, the height of, of the series for me was episode seven, Agnes All Along. I thought that was a great reveal in the way they sort of unpacked her character at the end felt just delightfully silly and weird and ominous and the whole bit. And I thought that the the last two episodes, they went a little bit too, this is going to sound strange, but they went a little bit too superhero-y for me. It, it felt like it left a little bit of the, of the really strange, quirky vibe of, of the rest of the season behind. And maybe they had to, maybe there was just no way to, to keep, that energy going, but, but it left me feeling this is something I've seen before, you know, whereas the rest of the, the, the the show was like nothing I had ever seen before. And this was, I think something we talked about with, uh, Avengers Endgame, where, and as we talked about what was next for the Marvel cinematic universe after phase three, I think one of the things we talked about in that episode was, Okay, you just had a main villain for this phase for this of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that took out half of life in the entire galaxy. And that's a really huge thing to try to top yeah. in the next phase. And we'll get into phase more questions and answers on or questions and ideas on phase 4 in a little bit, but it it felt like with the end of WandaVision that Marvel felt compelled to try to set up how phase four could be even bigger than a villain and more apocalyptic than a villain who could take out half of the known universe with a snap of his fingers. Yeah. And 
when you go that big that fast, it's really easy to lose the small stakes. And what I think what was most compelling about WandaVision episodes one through seven was how intimate the stakes felt in this little town of Westview and how we could connect with the quirkiness and the weirdness and the kind of sinister underlying it all on this small scale. And it felt nicely small scale uh, in, in a way that I really enjoyed getting to connect with the the quirkiness of what they're doing with the TV shows and all of that. Whereas it's, it seemed like in episodes eight and nine, it's like, okay, we got to get bombastic because phase four is going to be bananas with multiverses <laughs> and apocalyptic witches. It felt like a story that worked at its best, worked on two different levels. It worked on the level of a love story, you know, Wanda and Vision and, and their love. It worked as it, when it played on the theme of grief. Now, it also worked really well as a sitcom, this really tight, connected, um, very small, as you say, universe. You know, it was, it was contained within the home. It was contained within the family. Um, and that was one of the beauties of it. We, we knew, we know, after having watched Marvel Cinematic Universe as long as we have, Scarlet Witch and Vision are big deals. They've got big powers. They can do a lot of really big things and their characters go, you know, they they go throughout the universe and they do their thing and and it's a big deal, right? For this small screen version, the small story was beautiful and so counterintuitive in a way where you really got to see them connect outside of the bombast. And that made it not just a super fun story to get involved with, but on its own quirky level, a beautiful story too. I, I really did think it was it was beautiful in a lot of different ways. I really, really loved what they did with it. The love, the grief, the sitcom, it, it all just worked. And then the last couple of episodes, it went in a different and more predictable direction. Yeah, it felt like with the last two episodes, they felt like they needed to become a tentpole for where they wanted to go next. And I get that some of that has to happen. I think I just would have preferred if they had to leave questions unanswered that they would have left it at sort of that more mysterious sinister level the way they sort of did with the early episodes as they tease things out and you started to get the sense that not all was well in the state of Denmark. Yeah. I would have liked it if they kind of continued that a little bit longer and didn't feel like they, and set us up with questions about who's pulling these strings to, and who's the bigger villain behind all of this. Like, I think I would have been a little bit more okay with those questions had they not gone with this huge yeah, bombastic you know, sort of more paint by numbers approach with the last two episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was disappointing. And, and you know how, how, how much I waxed over how good I thought WandaVision was. I think the direct quote that I had here was that it should win all of the Emmys. But after watching the last two shows, all of a sudden, in a way, it went from being this shows you the dimensions and the depth that superhero stories can have. The last two episodes reminded you of why people sometimes feel that superhero stories can be shallow and vacuous. 
you know? Not saying that it was a disappointing ending. I think that there was some some resonance within the last last part. It was a satisfying ending um, to, on its own level, but it just felt like the the stakes for WandaVision had grown so high because the rest of the show was so creative. I missed seeing that creativity at the very end. It almost feels like a Stephen King book, you know, where where you have some really great scares and chills and character development in the very beginning. But he, it, it always seems like Stephen King books, they never quite pay off in the end. That's an interesting observation. Yeah, and it it seemed like things that, they ultimately used as red herrings let you down as well. Like Pietro, fake Pietro and (laughs) where they had this interesting, they made this interesting move of bringing in uh, Quicksilver from the X-Men universe, recasting Pietro and then sort of throw him away at the end by saying, Oh, he was just another mind controlled. Yeah. You know that there are some theories that, that could still get around that. And maybe they'll do more. Maybe the, maybe even the reveal that he wasn't that anything special may be a red herring for bigger picture things that they want to do in the MCU. There's that door is open to your earlier point, things like that. uh, You know, Agatha calling her bunny senior scratchy and that relating to Agatha Harkness's son, Nicholas Scratch, who has a big role in the comics. And who was Jimmy Woo, the FBI agent, looking for? What was that seemed to be a big point and a mysterious point that they kind of just left and didn't ever return to. Um, the Nexus idea that they introduced in one of the commercials in one of the earlier episodes, the idea of these Nexus beans, which in the comics, Wanda. Scarlet Witch is a nexus being who controls these access points to the multiverse. They didn't do anything with that in this story. So it's like, oh, okay, what was the tease for? Was it just an Easter egg? Are you building on that? What about Hayward's bigger plans for white vision? There's a whole lot there that goes kind of unexplored because we never learned anything more about Hayward's intentions with white vision. And then white vision just flies off. (sighs) You know, things like that where... I feel less like those. some of those threads don't feel like they're necessarily going to pay off because I lost a little bit of trust for them when they got so bombastic at the end. Yeah. I, no, I, I feel I a little agree. bit jaded. I agree. And I think, I think <laughs> this is going to sound odd, but honestly, when they stopped doing those fake commercials, that was a sign that the, the show was just going in a – in a more predictable and slightly downward trajectory. I loved those commercials because they were so clever, but they had so many to get to your earlier point. It, they, that was the area that felt the most like lost to me where you had these mm-hmm. little vignettes that pointed somewhere and they gave you the most little Easter eggs that you could sort of parse through and yet it didn't seem like a lot of the Easter eggs really necessarily paid off in those commercials. And, and it was that was a little bit disappointing to me as well. It seems like they, I guess the, the small glimmer of hope is that they do seem to be saying, hey, we're going to be tackling a lot in the next phase with the multiverse. It's going to get bananas. Now, is that a good thing, though? Is right. it a good thing that it's going to get bananas? I'm worried about that, too. Yep. Personally. As we will talk about in our next segment. 
You know, and, and to your very earlier point about the weakness of these superhero stories where nothing ever, the stakes never feel truly, uh, can struggle to feel truly impactful when everything can be rewritten. You have the Easter egg, one of the two Easter eggs in the WandaVision finale credits with seemingly the Scarlet Witch hearing her kids that we learned in the finale were just products of this hex that she had to let go of. In order to set everybody else free, she had to let go of her fake vision and Billy and Tommy that she manifested out of herself and her grief and her love and emotions. All of a sudden, we hear their voices in this Easter egg. And so all of a sudden, all the stakes that they're like, oh, look at this sacrifice she has to make were completely undermined in the credits, post-credits scene. I like See, leave I dead. think. I do wonder though, because the twins come up again and again in the comics, right? So in and they in the comics they were also product of, of Wanda's imagination. So it'll be interesting to see how that sort of develops. Well, but in the One comics thing- there was a bigger villain behind it that did give them a a bean beyond WandaVision. You know, I think it was Mephisto, mm-hmm. the sort of yep. satanic character in the comics. So there was an explanation for that, that it it seemingly in this show, they made very clear that no, this all came out of Wanda's emotions and she created this hex. She fabricated these characters and they, they seem to go complete. And, and they, and she says this to vision when he asks, what am I? And she's like, well, you're one part of my grief and, but mostly my love and all of this. And yet this was another place it missed for me was they really tried to hit on the sacrifice that she made in her grief to let go of all this and leave it, give up right. vision in the kids. That was supposed to be the emotional stakes that we were supposed to resonate with. And they have that line, I think, where Monica Rambo's like the, when all the people of the town are still mad at Wanda and she's like, they'll never know what you sacrificed. <laughs> And it was like, I, uh, I think they have a right to still be pissed. I just didn't buy that at a basic human level. I'm like, nah, I'd be pissed. Uh, they, and she just sat. lady hadn't seen her kid for the entire series. Right. That eight-year-old was trapped in her bedroom. I do have to say one of the things that I did like uh, was that goodbye between Wanda and Vision. I thought that that was that was sweet and sensitive and in the idea of unpacking what Vision was that was oddly impactful to me. And as you talk about the kids this is probably going to go into way too philosophical direction for this particular podcast but but I do wonder if it speaks to the act of creation and what I mean by that is that is that sometimes you know you hear this all the time from 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 writers who who create these really memorable characters they take on a life of their own some sometimes these authors say that they never even necessarily know what these what these characters are going to do until they start writing and you do find that sometimes those characters the people who are literally nothing more than fabrications from somebody's mind they outlive the creators themselves and in so in in a way in a way the finale made me think along those lines you know you have 
you have the power of these creations in 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 Wanda's mind. Maybe the, maybe those creations can somehow somehow transcend what they originally were. Sure, and I think they could have ha- maybe had some time to explore that between maybe some more darker philosophical discussions between Agatha and uh, Wanda. You know, there there was a bit of that realization in this finale where. Agatha sort of helps Wanda realize how much she's been torturing the townspeople of Westview, but it it sort of gets glossed over in the rush again to be bombastic and set up this big fight that didn't really feel very interesting at all between Wanda and Agatha in the sky. Whereas I think had this been sort of a psychological, sinister, mental chess match between Agatha and Wanda, where Agatha is exposing the villainy in Wanda bit by bit and then the villainy hidden in her naivete, I felt like that would have really worked and, and maybe lent itself more to that idea of these creations taking on a life of their own and having negative and positive characteristics of their own, apart from the original act of creation and intent. Uh, I felt like that could have, they, I, I just, I could envision how they could have done that without getting, so big and so randomly apocalyptic at the end of what was yeah. otherwise a very thoughtful and sort of slow burn show. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with you. I think and and that's sort of what you are suggesting they did is one of the reasons why Christopher Nolan's dark Knight series was so great, right? Is because it really analyzes that dynamic between, between good and evil and how sometimes your heroes they're not as different from the villains as you might think. So what separates them? And and that was something that that really when you do think about that that interplay between Scarlet Witch especially with the terrible things that she really did, they could have gone deeper. They could have gone more creative because I think that, that there was definitely they definitely left a lot of skin on the table that they could have they could have used. And they even hinted at it with the conversation between Hex Vision and White Vision, where they start discussing the ship of Theseus another philosophical question. Yeah. Which was a I really like that moment in and the idea that they were discussing there. And it felt like there was a whole lot more potential for those sorts of ideas to be explored. But again, they just needed to quickly get to being big and explosive again. Well, here's here's another question for you, Jake. We are obviously two adults talking over a show that's on Disney Plus that's meant you could argue for kids. Are we overanalyzing this? If it was, you know, if you're talking about a 13-year-old who is watching WandaVision, would they have some of the same reactions that we might with with some of the the character complexity that they just didn't go into? Are we overthinking this? I think this goes a little bit to what I said about The Mandalorian back when we did our recap of that, where I I could buy that if they didn't spend so much time delving into these bigger ideas or the, give such big hints and nods to these deeper ideas and really seem very intentionally to want you to go there. Because, I mean, well, for example, all of the time spent on Wanda's grief. That is not for the kids. You know, there are some kids that might, there's, I know there are kids that would understand that better than others, but that is not a storyline that you write 
for a child because there's children don't, aren't looking for that necessarily in their entertainment, even if they've gone through grief. Like that's just not what you, that seemed intentionally designed for the adult fans. And also I think a lot with Disney plus is not that it's not meant for kids. Clearly a lot of it is meant for kids, but I think a lot of Disney plus is designed for adults who grew up on Disney. So when I look at what they're doing with the, the Marvel cinematic universe as they're combining it with Disney plus is I still think their target is adults primarily again, even with the concept of WandaVision, you don't, you, why would you create a show premised on exploring oh, sitcoms from, sitcoms. yeah, you know, 80, like from 70, 60, 50, 40, 30 years ago, if you're aiming at kids, that doesn't make any sense. You're, you're targeting an adult audience with the very conceit of the show. You're targeting their nostalgia and you're targeting the grief that they've experienced with the loss of loved ones and stuff like that. So that's where I, I hear what you're saying. But I, I don't think that they've positioned themselves that way. And there's so many things they do to position themselves as this is a show targeting adults. That's okay for kids to watch in their yeah. minds, whether yeah. or not an parent thinks their kid's ready for it. Yeah. It is an interesting thought, you know, in, in terms of everything that you say, I, I feel is right on target. And it does feel like the show suffered from some schizophrenia, right? I mean, even even in the last two episodes, you had some beautiful moments when you talk about uh, the the vision talking to himself in in that philosophical vein. Um, the episode eight had one of my favorite quotes from any MCU property. You know, what is grief but love persevering? And I love that. I thought that that was just beautiful. And and again, even when we, we talk about Wanda's goodbye to vision, I thought that was really, really well done. And then it, it almost feels like someone took the pen away as they were writing the screenplay and said, okay, now here's where we're going to go. And if it, it did feel it suffered from a little bit of whiplash. I have a couple of more thoughts on WandaVision, but I think most of them serve best as segueing into our phase four discussion. Uh, so I will say before we go to those points that overall, I think I agree with you. I know for me personally, I was a big fan of the conceit of WandaVision. I really enjoyed the sitcom premise. I thought a lot of those episodes really hit it out of the park. I love the slow burn of, you know, things not being all the way right in what was happening and slowly figuring out what was going on and as trying to figure it out as Vision himself is trying to figure it out. I thought all that stuff worked really well and I it, my hopes went up over time as I watched them do that. Even and also though even though I was disappointed with the finale in the last two episodes I still would give the show pretty high marks overall, even if it doesn't ultimately land as well and as high concept as I hoped. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that that I will take away, this is going to sound strange, but I will honestly take away some great memories from WandaVision. It had some really delightful moments that are just irreplaceable, but and, and, and I think that it was a very fun series. By episode seven, I was telling Wendy, my wife, that we were going to watch the whole thing over again so we could figure it out. 
episodes eight and nine made me less likely to do so. Yeah, I don't feel though I I wouldn't mind going back to certain episodes to pick up more Easter eggs of how they or how they they've paid homage to classic sitcoms and things like that, things that I might have missed the first time. But I don't feel similarly, I don't feel compelled to go back through the series to rewatch, even the way I did for something like Tenet, where even though Tenet didn't blow me away, I I did have that urge to go back and watch it again to pick up all the things I missed and put it all together. To your point, after you watch those final two episodes, you realize, oh, they really there's I'm not gonna glean very much and and figure out what's coming next by watching it again. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the best shows like this, they always have like an aha moment at the very end where you say, oh my goodness, that was so clever. This didn't happen. I mean, the closest no. was, was Agnes all along. So ultimately, I'd give it a 7.25 out of 10, I think, for me. Wow. Enjoyable. I wouldn't wreck, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't hate if I had to watch it again. You know, I will probably as my kids get older and they dive into the MCU. They've been a little bit young for it. So I'm sure I'll revisit it. It won't be something that I skip like I'll be tempted to with something like Thor The Dark World. though. I'm not saying I will skip it. I'm just saying I'll be tempted to. But yeah, it didn't end up becoming top tier for me in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would probably give it a seven, five or an eight. So, but I tend to rate higher than you do. So it ends up averaging out to us probably liking it very close to the same amount. (laughs) Which does bring us, I think, to talking about some of the implications that stem forward into phase four. I think one most notably for me from a content caveat for with Paul AC type of framework is boy, does what they did with WandaVision really lean into a much darker spiritual setup for phase four in the MCU that I think is going to concern a lot of parents and you know christian parents in particular because uh, you know we I, we talked about it years ago with dr strange where you started to get into some really complex and heavy spiritual stuff wandavision's like let's suggesting that that's about to get amped up to the max in phase yeah. four yeah it is interesting because i think you and i differed widely on dr strange i really loved it and i could see a lot of uh, a lot of good Christian parallels within that movie, you didn't, you didn't care for it at all. I remember, but I think you're right that, that we are definitely just what little I know about the, the future of the MCU. It is going in some weird places that are going to be, they're just going to be harder for a lot of families to navigate. And, and you're going to get into, I, I just wonder if phase four might, be the end of the MCU as we know it. That might be a little bit more uh, apocalyptic for the series than I was imagining. But yeah, to your point with Dr. Strange, I think because of Derek Scott Derrickson's own faith, you saw him draw some Christian parallels out of very unchristian, not, you know, not, not specifically Christian religious elements that 
pervaded in the Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme storyline origin there. But with after it gets re- after Agatha's reveal um, in WandaVision, they leaned really heavily into the witchcraft side of things. Like they really wanted to make sure like that there was no bones about it. Like they, they even had Wanda come out and say, no, no, I'm not doing the spells. Like I just have these superpowers sort of like almost like talking from the audience's perspective of, yeah, they aren't these just superpowers and WandaVision is like, no, this is witchcraft. Here's this demonic witchcraft book. WandaVision is Wanda is going to turn into a hardcore witch. Did we mention the word witch? How about these witches from the past? Have we convinced you enough that we really want to lean into this whole witch thing? Have you heard of the Scarlet Witch? She's a witch. Definitely a witch. Hey, post credit scene. Here's her being a witch in the astral plane and becoming even more of a witch. And it was like they really wanted to beat you over the head with it that this is where we're going. To me, yeah, that was my perspective on it. And again, it it was obviously from from the perspective of of you know my day job. It was it I knew it was going to cause some concern, and you do have to sort of wonder where everything will will sort of head from this way out. You know, just just what little I know of what's coming up in Phase Four. There's some really interesting properties that that not only are they going to be harder for for some some families who had embraced this universe before, they're just going to be harder to embrace. You know, the the Eternals when that's coming out in November. Um, obviously, as you start to delve deeper and deeper into into the the Marvel universe, the the comic book world. A lot of the 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 lines between superheroes and gods start to sort of fall down, and you start to wonder where it's all going to go. So, so from a spiritual point of view, I think that that you are getting into some some dicier places for a lot of families that that had pretty much embraced this whole universe before now. The other thing that we're talking about is is we're just going to be dealing with a lot of characters that are very unfamiliar. It worked with Iron Man, but it worked, let's be honest, it worked because Robert Downey Jr. was there. He made it work. Not everybody knew that that Iron Man was a thing, but because he so embodied the character, it 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 let the whole MCU fly. Here, I'm not sure if we have that in the future of the MCU. I think that that Falcon and the Winter Soldier, when it comes out this March, is going to do really well. Black Widow, the movie, when it comes out in May, is going to do really well. After that, things get a little bit more iffy when you start to talk about Chang Chi and, and the Legend of the Ten Rings, uh, the Eternals. Uh, it's it's going to be Moon Knight. Huh? Moon Knight. Yeah, you're you're asking for fans who are not immersed in the Marvel universe. You're asking for them to make some jumps that I'm not sure if everybody's going to be really excited about doing. You know? Right. It's it's a big I do think it is a gamble from Feige and Marvel Studios because as much as the nerds are going to love the expansion of Marvel, the Marvel multiverse, I think from a practical standpoint, all of the non-nerds that have kind of been grafted into 
into this universe through the MCU specifically, it's a whole lot to ask them to get up to speed on again. Yes, you'll have some characters carrying over, but they're really ones that I think more of the nerds and the geeks were into than your standard audience. Like when you think about Dr. Strange and Wanda Maximoff and um, all these, and then, and then Loki, he did have some more mainstream appeal, but you're all of a sudden you're introducing all of these other characters that again, most of these people have never heard of. And now you're asking, well, we've, we know already confirmed that we have seven more Disney plus shows coming. That's a whole lot of like attention that the audience has to, to, pay attention to, to follow. So it's like the more you diversify the storyline, the more the hardcore fans love it. But I think the more inaccessible it might make it to the less hardcore fans. Yeah. I, I got to say, I was really, really, and, and, and that would be me, right? And, and to you to some extent, I, I yeah. think that I didn't grow up with the comics, but I really got invested in the MCU. I can't say looking at the roster I can't say that there's anything that really I get really this anticipation for that I have to have to have to have to see it. Um, I think Black Widow is going to be good because I'm a I'm a weird guy. I'm kind of excited for the Hawkeye series to to sort of pop up, but but beyond that, I can't think of anything that I think. Yes, this is a must see. This is a must watch. This will be a valued addition to what has come before. Um, I I just don't get it. And and the other thing, it, this gets back to what we were talking about in the first segment. In, in a way, when you look at what's coming up, and and even what we've just seen, WandaVision, Black Widow, Loki. These are characters that died. They didn't get blipped. Right. They died. And yet they all have these new series. So so either they're flashbacks, and they could be, you know, they could be prequels or whatnot. But it does it does re-emphasize how little the stakes actually matter in sometimes these these superhero stories. Right. Well, and going back to the point I think we were making earlier about how forgetful we are. Honestly, I for, I don't even I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how Loki died. Because he's he's already showed up in other places uh in the in the, and we know he's got another show. So I honestly that kind of told my brain to forget about the fact that he was dead at one point and to operate as though he wasn't. Like honestly, I I still I you could ask me right now. I couldn't tell you how Loki actually died. And I I definitely saw it. <laughs> But Paul, I don't know how he died. How did Loki die? Can you refresh my memory real quick? Thanos. It was Thanos. He came aboard the ship. He killed him. I think, did he strangle him? I can't remember. I can't remember mm. whether he strangled him or sliced him across the throat or whatnot. But, and, and weirdly enough, I mean, I think that Loki actually may have a little bit of a WandaVision vibe to it. It's it's apparently a sort of weird mystery story maybe even a murder mystery story that takes place in the 1970s so that could have some interest but but again you know i kind of like it when characters just die i think that it just it just makes for a more effective story in a way right we as the audience understand that there are stakes within the universe 
And, and we have to have sort of those agreed upon stakes to have an agreed upon level of empathy and compassion for those who remain. Right, exactly. You know, we watched Endgame together. We watched Infinity War together. You remember as I walked out of Infinity War how shocked I was at what had happened. And I think that it spoke to the sense of of high stakes that that movie had. Phase four seems to be undercutting all the power that the final two movies brought to bear. And... Although, you know, I like Loki as much as anybody, I'm really happy to see Black Widow kick some more, but I do think that the power of those final two Avengers stories was just so strong that I hate to see that diminished. Yeah, it'll be, I am very curious to see in that regard, because anecdotally on two fronts, this is not empirical data, guys, so geeks, you can get off my back on this one, but... I don't think my wife would have watched WandaVision if it were not for me wanting to go through it for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And she was she was very invested in the MCU. Like she did not grow up on comics, but she got invested in the MCU to a high degree for a casual in that regard and a noob in that regard. And she really didn't have much interest in WandaVision. And honestly, I don't think she would have watched it except for me making – I didn't make her, but choosing to watch it along with me because I was going to watch it either way. And, uh, but then also to counter my own points, she did not agree with my take on the finale of WandaVision and was not as bothered by the choices that were made in the final two episodes of WandaVision as I was. And so I think we're going to have this interesting dynamic that's going to be at play where you, uh, are people are is a certain segment just going to self-select out of watching it in the first place because they don't care that much about some of these characters and there's too many to take to pay attention to. But when those that do opt in by watching them, are they still going to enjoy it? It seems like Marvel's got a track record of making that happen. I'm just curious to see which one wins out. And it will be interesting. I, and I think that the wild card in all this, and it really should be like top of mind wild card in a way, is the quality. You know, I, I think that, that your wife's reaction was probably not unusual. WandaVision, because it was such a strong show at the very top, um, it pulled people in and it invested them into this new series of shows. Now, if some of these new properties, these phase four properties can can retain that sense of, of newness and freshness and cleverness and pull us in with new characters that we might not be familiar with, then who knows? Maybe, maybe the MCU has many, many phases left to go. I just kind of fear that we might be looking at the end of I I fear that what we have seen from the MCU might just peter out. It might be a little like um, Joe Namath's football career, where he just sort of faded out after this glorious beginning. Um, And then we'll have a bunch of reboots, you know, 10 years from now. And that, I'll say, that is where I am hopeful for Phase 4 of the MCU, looking at a roster that includes so many different titles that I've never heard of. I'm glad that they're not leaning too hard into showing all of the thing, you know, because that's always the tension point for these types of things is how much do you lean into what already worked? 
And so they could have tried to lean really hard on characters you already knew. And in some ways, they're doing a version of that by having Wanda in Vision, by having a show for Hawkeye, having a show for Loki, having a show for Falcon and Winter Soldier, and just leaning back on characters they know the audience has already connected with. But they could have gone all the way that way and just stuck with those characters in Spider-Man and been like, this is what we're doing. So the fact that they're trying something new, I I do like that. I do like that they're trying to still keep it fresh, even as they like lean on some staples from the previous phases. So I'll say, I'll say I, I do like that because I like the new, I don't like when things get too held up on the past. Like, I think that was a lot of the debate that uh, fans had around the star Wars seven, eight, and nine sort of the battle you could see waging back and forth between episode seven, episode eight and episode nine of (laughs) being in the past, trying to be something else and then just returning almost completely back to the past. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. There's, there's always a tension, especially when you have people who are so invested in these universes that have been so, so strategically and creatively built when you get invested with them, it can be difficult to do something new. And yet you have to do something new if you want the universe to to go forward. So it it will be an interesting point of tension. I, for one, am actually looking forward to Falcon and Winter Soldier. Now, will it merit going forward and and selling you know, all in for, for phase four. I'm not sure, but, but that particular series looks like it could be kind of fun. And there are still a lot of questions as Disney and Marvel are uh, bringing back different rights to things that they haven't had film or TV rights for, or making deals with Sony on some of this stuff. I think there's some interesting things that could happen there. Like in 21, 2021, I believe Marvel Studios gets fully back the rights to like the Defenders that we, uh, the Defender series that got, did really well on Netflix. So, what are they going to do with those? There's a lot of questions still unanswered about how uh, Marvel Studios is going to, whether they're going to incorporate it, whether they're going to consider it a part of the canon, whether they're going to dismiss it the way they seem to be doing with a lot of the, like the Marvel television properties like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D and runaways that they kind of retconned with some stuff in WandaVision, like specifically with the Darkhold witchcraft book. And then I think the other interesting thing is what they're continuing to do in a pseudo partnership with Sony uh, around Spider-Man. And now some of these other characters like Morbius, who, who the heck is Morbius? I'd never heard of Morbius. And yet they, have you watched the trailer for Morbius, Paul? I have not. No. Are you familiar with the character at all? Actually, no, I, I take that back. I watched, I saw an early trailer of it. Um, he's, he looks like a vampire guy, right? So Yeah, it's, it's a Marvel villain that becomes a living vampire through a science experiment as he's trying to heal himself from a rare disease. And then he becomes this living vampire that, you know, shares some of the physical strengths and weaknesses of vampires, but not the spiritual ones, basically. Uh, in the more updated, longer version of the trailer for Morbius, that's coming from very specifically in the trailer, the makers of uh, the Sony Spider-Man movies and uh, Venom, you see Michael Keaton's Vulture character show up. 
in the trailer. So, and you see a poster of Spider-Man that has graffiti over it saying murderer. And and so like based on that timeline, it seems to imply that they're plopping this Morbius char- like movie straight into the Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline, even as it's still owned by Sony. It's very confusing. And then, and then you've got the fact that Disney now owns Fox, right? Who was home for all the X-Men characters. It does make you wonder whether there could be, whether this could really just be the beginning in some ways. I don't know though. It just, it just gets so muddy. It gets so difficult to, to parse all these things. And again, I think that, that, when you look at the MCU, it is one of the most remarkable cinematic feats in history. Uh, the fact that they were able to pull all these things together, combine Sony in there so that you could have Spider-Man doing it. It, it felt very cohesive. But man, when you start getting into all these different characters that they could get into and that the fans would want them to get into, it could get really muddy and really confusing really fast. How can you make a two hundred million dollar niche movie? You know, right? I I just don't think you can. I believe that even if Phase Four flops miserably for Marvel, that what they did with the first three phases in the MCU, with quote unquote the Steve Rogers or Tony Stark saga, I think Tony Stark saga, right? That's kind of the unofficially official title that it's been given uh, post mortem that it's still one of the greatest accomplishments, if not the single greatest accomplishment for a connected cinematic universe to date. And we do know that ultimately all good things must come to an end. But I do think the multiverse does open up some interesting possibilities that that don't that aren't inherently destined to fail. We've talked a lot about how we fear they may, but I don't think they're inherently destined to. And they could end up being really good. Like this, all you know, digging into all this phase four stuff made me realize something I had forgotten that was announced two years ago. That in the next Thor, we we're we're getting a female Thor in Natalie Portman as Mighty Thor. Okay, that could be interesting. That's different. We shall see. I I like Taika Waititi. I think he he does well, a good job. He is kind of brilliant. I I am going to be I'm going to be interested. Let's just say that. I I think that I in the MCU before, I was genuinely excited when each and every new superhero movie came down the pipe because I knew it was furthering they had set up a really great track record. I I thought that this was something that as a as a fan, as a movie watcher, I really dug. For me, this new chapter is something I will be interested to see, but it's more clinical. It's more critical. I'm no longer as much of a fan as I am a critic, and I will be very curious to see what develops and to see whether they can retain the momentum that they built so effectively within the the MCU in the past. It, it, It makes me curious, but it doesn't make me excited. Here's a question that is an Easter egg for my most least important thing, but I don't know if you'll re- realize that until later. We've talked before about how much trust we ended up having with 
Marvel Studios and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we've talked about what they were doing with Phase 3 and the questions we had. And yet we usually came back around to, but they've earned a lot of our trust. They've done a really good job with this as storytellers connecting in this universe. Maybe we've got little quibbles, but all the big stuff seems to come together. Sort of, I feel like, not inherently dissimilar from how a lot of us Lord of the Rings fans felt about Peter Jackson with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Sure, maybe there's little imperfections, but boy, he seemed to handle the big picture pretty well. Right, right. Why do you think we've so quickly, potentially, this is anecdotal, but why do you think you and I maybe have become so cynical so quickly and turned and that trust has disintegrated like the snap? Yeah, you know, (laughs) it is interesting. And I think that I am still... It is, I think it's just, we can see, I can see how much harder it will be. You know, they had developed a trust and it was building to this thing. We all knew it was building toward this mountaintop, right? But the idea of building onto that mountaintop feels more difficult. It feels um, much trickier, especially when you're talking about. When you're talking about a stable that is losing some of its most most powerhouse characters, right? Mm. You're trying to build on the momentum with a lot of second-tier characters. You're trying to build on the, the momentum with some much more difficult um, story trajectories to follow, um, again, you're talking about the, the multiverse, you're talking about, um, new dimensions, uh, lots and lots of new universe type of characters that, that are just wholly familiar. And so I think because of that, they have earned our trust, but I think it's a little like going into a restaurant, you know, you know that they make a great burger, you know, they do fantastic fries. Now they are saying, I am going to make you a fantastic, um, octopus sandwich that you will love. And you will say, well, man, they've done really good stuff in the past. Octopus. I'm just not so sure. Mm. So it, a, it, you leave it up to, to the taste. No, that's not a bad analogy. I do think the the obstacle they had to overcome when they launched the MCU was a really difficult one, but a very different one of we've got to take something that's been mostly niche and find a, try to find a way to make it palatable for a wider audience. And that was a hard task to do. And I think they did it really well. But like any great NBA dynasty, the trouble is very different when you're now at the top of the pile and, you know, Michael Jordan has retired and Scottie Pippen wants a new contract and Dennis Rodman doesn't have those two guys around to encourage him and push him in a more responsible direction. And all of a sudden everybody else is gunning for you and giving you their best shot. And everybody's expectations are you're going to be this 92 win team that takes the, you know, takes the championship. And even so, even if you put a product out on the floor that wins 60 games, everybody's like, yeah, well, you've done a lot better before. So exactly. And isn't that a very challenge? 
Isn't that the problem with WandaVision too? I mean, it, it felt like it felt a little like that. It felt like this is a great show that didn't quite blow our socks off, you know? And as that's the problem with success is that when you have success, everybody, including us, wants to see how you're going to top yourself. And eventually you get to the point where you just can't necessarily do it. Which, you know, Stan Lee seemed to suffer from a lot in his career where his success early on made it a lot more difficult for him to have success with many of his later ventures that ended up not being nearly as successful. So Marvel Cinematic Multiverse Phase 4, we'll see. We've got a cynical, skeptical eye on you, Kevin Feige, Disney, Marvel. <laughs> you haven't won us over just yet. WandaVision was, it was fine. It was, to quote Paul Acey, it was just fine. <laughs> yeah, for, for the new Phase 4, I'm no longer fanboy. I'm just fan hopeful boy fan slightly cynic yeah boy exactly i'm waiting man paul ac boy uh what did you think of wandavision what are your thoughts about marv the marvel cinematic multiverse let's just go with mcm at this point right they're made it clear we got the we got the uh multiverse of madness coming with dr strange guys and we got rumors about andrew garfield and Tobey Maguire showing up in another in a Spider-Man movie. And so it really seems like we're just going to go full bore with this multiverse thing. So buckle up. But for us right now, it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are in the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours and the not little shows of ours, as some of them this tend to not I be so little. qualifies as a little show. And you know what, Paul? As for me and my house, I'm just fine with that. <laughs> the most least important thing is where we take our hopeful and cynical lenses to whatever topics we so choose and we try to make a big hoopla or a little hoopla out of them we really we care a whole lot about the size and hoopla around things in the most least important thing and it just gives me opportunities to say words like hoopla over and over again hoopla 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 Hoopla. i don't know where hoopla comes from in terms of its origins no no, that would be a good question. It, yeah. The more I say it, the weirder it sounds. Hoopla, right. hoopla, 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 like the Kubla Khan, the Hoopla Khan. That's not a segue. <laughs> I teased earlier when I that I had an Easter egg for you uh, for this most least important thing, and it was it was in a single word, Paul. It was in the word cynical, and I got that word. From a little Disney Plus, here's my segue, a little Disney Plus gem that I know both you and I, even though I didn't tell you I was going to bring this up as my most important thing, I know both you and I have seen this little gem. And Mm. that is a newly released movie on Disney Plus called Flora and Ulysses. Flora and uh, and 
Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, Paul, I decided to watch that with the family this weekend, and I was delighted. I have to say, it felt like just about the perfect family movie to watch with the kids and enjoy in all of its sweet and sorrowful and saccharine and silly glory. I was really surprised. Very, and I feel like I, I risk overblowing it. But I, I genuinely really liked Flora and Ulysses on Disney+. Plus. You know, it is really interesting that you mentioned that. As I, I reviewed it, and uh, I, I have to say that it felt like a flashback to my past, you know? Because back in my childhood, Disney didn't own Marvel. It didn't own Star Wars. It didn't have Pixar. It was known for its its big, behemoth, beautiful animated movies. But the heart of its business really were these these live action films that just sort of trundled out for a few weeks at the theater. And families would flock there and they would watch them and they would really enjoy them. And they would go home. And that's what this felt like. It felt like just sort of one of those little delightful throwback movies that the whole family could truly watch together. Yeah. I don't I I know I tend to poo-poo nostalgia when it becomes too heavy and I think we can whitewash over things uh and forget a lot of things that are less than pleasant when we get nostalgic. But I had the very similar sensation in the thought of this is a film that when if I were to say, I just want to watch a nice, lovely family movie. <laughs> This is what I would put together. Like I just, the stakes were sufficiently silly. The emotions were just sorrowful enough to pull at those heartstrings without becoming depressing. The characters were just silly enough that you could laugh at them and guffaw over the ridiculous slapstick stuff that happened that really should be a lot more serious than they let on in the silliness of the slapstick. And the 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 little girl actress uh was delighted pretty good yeah. yeah she was pretty fun no no i i was just going to say i thought that it was it was cool to see some uh some surprising character actors mm-hmm. to, to show up there um the the dad was from Parks and Rec. There was a delightful little animal catcher. Animal catchers are always the worst in Disney movies. They're always terrible. But he comes from a community. Um, It was fun to see some of these folks uh, sort of get together in just this silly little framework. Yeah, Allison Hannigan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) Bobby Moynihan from SNL. Like you really, though, there is a shared history between Bobby Moynihan, Danny Pudi, who you mentioned, the animal catcher from Community as Abed, and Ben Schwartz, Jean Ralphio fame as the dad. They those three guys have also started another Disney show. Did you know that? I did not know that. In the Disney reboot of DuckTales, Bobby Moynihan, Danny Pudi, and Ben Schwartz are Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Oh my goodness. That, so that, that right there. That is the most least important thing. That yeah. the fact that they were in in DuckTales, that's that's pretty awesome. Which is a good little reboot of a series yeah. if you if you haven't checked that out. It's fun. I have um, checked it out. 
My wife and I, I forced my wife to watch it, actually. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, and and I didn't realize this, so I really should have before watching it, that I think a big part of where it lands is that Kate, it's a Kate, it's based on a Kate D. Camillo book. There's something about Kate D. Camillo books that seem to lend themselves to really nice movies because of Win Dixie, The Tale of Despero, and now Flora and Ulysses. I'm just looking at those and something about how she writes and the adaptations she's greenlit, they've all kind of landed. They've all kind of landed. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that, uh, you know, I probably didn't like Flora and Ulysses as much as you did. It was probably just a little too cutesy for me, but I totally get what you're saying. You know, I think it is just a sweet movie. And you know what? Sometimes we just need a sweet movie. It made me, I'll say this, watching it for an hour and a half that I watched it, I felt like a kid again watching a movie which it was a really interesting phenomenon to note because I didn't anticipate it. The trailer, when I watched it, didn't catch me all that much other than, oh, I like Ben Schwartz and Danny Pudi. And oh, this could be interesting. This could be cute. So I pulled up Paul's review and just to see if there are any landmines for the little kids. And I was like, no, we're going to watch this film. And I, I was surprised at it is very cutesy, but in such a refreshing way. And Because I think it's just for me, it was just self-aware enough of its cutesiness to ha- to be fun and not just be like, Oh my goodness, roll my eyes, Nicholas sparks for kids, you know? <laughs> so I won't belabor my point too much. I just felt like this might be one that uh, somebody might bypass, but if you need a nice feel good film, little throwback to your youth, Flora and Ulysses might just be that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in some ways, that's a great segue to to my most least important thing, because really, we're talking about a sweet film. Where ideally would you like to what sweet place would you like to watch a sweet film on? Like, where Uh, would you want to go? Like a physical setting, a physical setting. Would you say, for instance, like to watch Flora and Ulysses on your own private island in the Bahamas? Ooh. I mean, if I, to be honest, if I was on a private island of mine in the Bahamas, I'd probably rather be doing a few other things than watching hmm. movies. Hmm. But if I had to watch a movie while I was on a private island in the Bahamas, that'd be a fun one to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what, Jake? Knowing that you are independently wealthy, you may have <laughs> That's right. Your chance. You may have your chance because on March 26th, the largest private island in the Bahamas is being auctioned off. Oh. It is a, the, the island's name is St. Andrews or otherwise known as the Little Ragged Island, which is not really actually too fitting, it doesn't seem like, because it doesn't seem like there's anything ragged about it. It's it's 730 acres, which is big enough if you had enough money left over to build an 18-hole golf course on the island, oh, full 18-hole golf course. And I know that you really like golf, so I'm, that's a yeah. possibility as well. Um, you would probably have to spend $19.5 million to buy it, or at least even to get into the bidding. But but here's the good news for poor people like me. Technically, there's there's no minimum bid. So oh. if if 
if no one else bids, I could I could actually get the the island for, you know, maybe 50 75 bucks. Sorry, I mean, why not throw your hat in the ring at that price? Exactly. Exactly. Now, if if you do with your unlimited bank account, it it could go significantly higher. But yeah, I mean, there's going to be jerks like me that come in and put the price at a cool mill just to get you suckers out of the out of the way, you know, uh, that just are like, no, 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 uh, we got to even a mill. I, I don't want those little maggots scratching around at a million. I would probably just come in and go with a cool 20 mil just to keep the riffraff out of the bidding. Because I know I'm going to price a whole lot of the chumps out if I just drop that cool twenty right up exactly. first bid, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, it's not you, worth you, haggling when I know I'm going to pay twenty yeah. million up against. I mean, twenty million is just the starting point. That's the minimum that me and Bezos put out. Exactly. Between each other to just like for fun, because that's like pocket change. But it's it's sort of what you bet. Over March Madness, right? So I, I think that that really, what's what's a few twenty, thirty, forty million dollars when there's a when there's a nice private island at stake? Right. I mean that that's really the main problem for me and the bees. Uh, that's what that's what I call Jeff. Yeah, the bees. The bees. Um, yeah, just because it, it. Yes, it's a private Bahamas island, but. It's not the best private island out there. Like, there's a reason the rich people call it a ragged one. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I know that the little people just don't understand why it would be called ragged, but yeah, look, you you want a medium sized, well groomed island, not little. Yeah, ragged. absolutely, absolutely. Like, you got to have medium sized just for like your fourth or fifth home. Right. Um, it, ragged. Ragged works for like a one night escape. You know, when you're making that transatlantic flight and you just need to bum it for a night, you know, slum. Yeah. Like that's that's where St. Andrews comes in handy. And like you don't mind that for a cool 35, 40 mil. Like that's that's yeah. right. Yeah. You can just show up. You don't feel like you have to you don't have to have any errors because it's just a little ragged island. It doesn't even have room for an 18 hole golf course and a rugby stadium. And that's really what Private islands need to be for for your class of. You can have fewer staff people there, which is nice. A lot less drama. You can just keep. You can kind of keep an island like that with only about 120 people versus, you know, on these bigger islands, you got to have like a thousand just because there's so many things to keep it going all year round. Uh, again, such a hassle. Such yeah, a hassle. It's 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 just one of those things where ultimately at some point you have to decide. Ah, you know. Is it worth the bother for house number 14? <laughs> All this sand, is it really worth the bother? I tell you, just the things you worry about at this level of life are really different. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Rich as F. Rich as folk. Rich, richest folk. Yeah, nice, nice. I'm the richest, rich AF (laughs) means as, as folks, rich as folks. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm super trillionaire, Jake Roberson. You can find me on Twitter, slumming it with the little people at Jake underscore Roberson. 
Paul I'm, is one of those little people I swill it with. What's your handle? Yeah, I'm I'm at AC Paul. And if you care to give me $19.5 million just to get me in the running with Jake for this private island, feel free to send it to me. Well, I, I would hate for them to get your hopes up because you're not going to get it for 19.5. So <laughs> why even get your hopes up? Just stay cynical, Paul. Just you'll enjoy life a whole lot more if you stay cynical. <laughs> Uh, that's it for us. We thank you for journeying with us into our crazy brains. Again, I'm Jake. I'm Paul. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.